Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we uh, thank you for the privilege of worship. We thank you for the Lord's Day, a day when we intentionally, according to Scripture, set aside worship to gather together with other brothers and sisters in Christ. We thank you that we sing Scripture, that we read it, that we think through it, and we pray, Holy Spirit, you would take the Word of God and change us. In Jesus' name, amen. In Ephesians 6, which says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might, that we are to put on the full armor of God, or the whole armor of God, because we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on the whole armor of God. So as we think about this, I want to just address for a while now the why are we sometimes negligent in this area? I'm going to give you several reasons, and, but one reason we are negligent in this area is that we are unaware of the pervasive warfare that is going on around us. We don't realize that there is a cosmic struggle for our welfare and for the advancement of kingdom of, the, of God all around us. There's a quote in the bulletin from man, a man named Eugene Peterson, and he, he talks about this issue, and he says that we don't realize that there is an ongoing struggle around us. And he says there's no neutral ground in the universe. Every square foot of space is contested, that God is for hope and against despair, that God is for heaven and against hell. Therefore, there is no neutral ground. When you look at the book of Ephesians, which is our focal passage, you, you see this. In chapter 5, verse 15, it says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as wise, but not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. In other words, there are forces of evil. There's an evil system that is part of our surroundings, and if we're not careful, we can fall into it. First Peter says that Satan wants to drink us down. He goes around like a roaring lion. And so in chapter 6, it says this, verse 13, Take, therefore, the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. In other words, th there are times, days, seasons in your life where you are beset by temptation and evil and despair. And the way you fight against that is to take up the full armor of God as you are aware of your standing in Christ. There are people here today that are dealing with deep despair, hurt, a relational discord. There are other people here that are contemplating doing things that are going to bring disrepute upon the name of Christ and heartache to your own spirit. These are days of evil. And so to withstand in the day of evil, and we will all get them. You know, life is like a roller coaster, sometimes a big roller coaster. And you're, you're up and you're down and you're here. That is just life. Somebody calls it the law of undulation, waves. And, and to be strong, we've got to put on the full armor of God because our struggle is ongoing. And, and see, another thing that, I, that plays into this issue of not being aware or 
of the pervasiveness is if, if you go to Barnes & Noble today and, and you have studied theology and you, you, there, there will be a really good Christ-honoring, Bible-saturated book next to three or four or five that aren't worth the paper they're written on. And that's in the Christian book section. And so when you have people writing about spiritual warfare, instead of staying in the Word, they start becoming speculative and ultra-mystical. And they talk about this and they talk about that. And, I, and my, my plea to you is stay in the Word. The Bible says that everything we need for life and godliness is given to us right here. We don't need to be speculative. How do you fight the devil? You're strong in the Lord. And you put on the whole armor of God. So, so understand, there's warfare. There's warfare right now for your soul, for your welfare, for the legacy of your name. There is warfare. The second scheme, or one reason we're negligent, is because we're not aware of the, the dominant worldviews that surround us in our atmosphere. And one worldview is called scientific naturalism or naturalism. And it's ably discussed by a man named Philip Johnson who's written some outstanding books. Johnson uh, sa says this regarding scientific naturalism. He says that scientific naturalism is a story that reduces reality uh, to physical particles and impersonal laws. It portrays life as a meaningless competition among organisms that exist only to survive and reproduce and sees the mind as no more than emergent property of biochemical reactions. In other words, this worldview says that everything around us is just maybe a glorious but it's a random cacophony of nothingness. I was thinking about this last night. I was walking around praying, and I, I just looked up to the sky. And I thought, man, it was, it was a beautiful night, if you saw last night. And I thought, is that vast universe, all those stars, are, are they just the random outworking of the impersonal or is that starry, beautiful night a statement of a creative God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Is that the creative energy of one whose name is Jesus because the Bible says that all things exist in Christ and were made by Christ? And then I, we came in this morning. In this room, we sang a hymn that's well-known and loved by people who've been in the faith very long and titled, How Great Thou Art. And the, the first two stanzas talk about the beauty of creation. O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. When through the woods and forest glades I wander and hear the birds sing sweetly in the trees. He talks about the glory of creation. In the next stanza, though, he talks about the, the, the special revelation of God in Christ. And when I think that God, his Son, not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in, that on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul. Then my soul stands basically in awe. I glory in the goodness of God. 
two years ago, Stanford University released a survey or study deal with something they called awe therapy, A-W-E, awe therapy. And the study said this, that, uh, that Stanford University finds that an awe-inspiring experience can improve our mental state and make us nicer people overall. Awe is the emotion we feel when we encounter something so beautiful that it changes our perspective, at least for a moment. That could range from finding yourself entranced under the northern lights to gazing at a perfect sunset over the Pacific to feeling tiny underneath a moonlit sky full of stars. They found there's a correlation between awe and happiness. And I read that and I thought, how much more should we stand on our beautiful shores or go across our bridges and look out at the beautiful harbor or go out today? Today you just go outside and go, wow, what a beautiful day. Hurry up and get finished with the sermon. I want to get outside. You know, that type of thing. How much more should we go outside and say, behold the beauty of a creative God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. To stand on the beach and say, this is not, this, this, the unbelievable give and come of the tides and the seasons is, is a perfect statement of a glorious God who created the world and said it is very good. To know that God is glorious and He is good. Awe therapy. Number three, one reason we're negligent is not only that we, we don't understand worldviews, but also we don't discern the multifaceted attack of the devil. And I, I'm just going to hit four areas, as time allows, four areas that deals with the multifaceted attack of the devil. The devil's got a lot of weapons in, in his quiver. I'm just going to deal with a few. The first is this, in Acts chapter 5, verse 3, in the early church, there's a man named Ananias and Sapphira. They had some land. They sold it, and they trumpeted abroad. We're going to take all the proceeds from the purchase or the sale of our land, and we're going to bring it to the church and lay it at the apostles' feet to be used in the kingdom of God. So that's the background. Suppose they sold the land. They brought it in. And this is what the Bible says. And with his wife's knowledge, Ananias kept back for himself some of the proceeds, brought only a part of it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. He may have sold the land for 500000 He brought 50000 and said, this is, this, is the, this is everything. This is the whole shooting match. Verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan, see, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but you've lied to God. Close quote. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and breathed his last. The young men rose, wrapped him up, and carried him out and buried him. Three hours later, his wife comes in, unaware of what's happened to her husband. Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much money. And she said, yes, we sold it for that amount. And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet 
of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out immediately. She fell down at his feet, dead. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Verse 11, an incredible understatement. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This is what happened. They just lied. They want to be seen as big, benevolent givers. And, and God is jealous for the purity of his church. God is jealous for the purity of his bride, the church. And, and so when we're deceptive and deceitful and condescending and uncaring and, and lie, who's involved in that? Satan, the devil. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, Ananias? And, and so... That's one of his ploys to make us deceptive and uncaring and try to, to be double-minded and appear to be something that we're really not. And what's scary about this passage, as you read it, I get the impression that Ananias and Sapphira may very well have been truly born-again believers. True believers. Peter doesn't say you're not a believer. So we need to be very careful. God guards the jealous, jealously the purity of his church. That's one arrow. Another facet is in Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says this in verse 14. Since then, the children share in flesh and blood. He himself, Jesus, also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This is what happens. You have a craven fear of death which says, I have no idea what awaits me beyond the grave. I have no assurance that I belong to Christ. I'm preaching on assurance next week. Assurance of salvation. I, I have no assurance that I really belong to Jesus. And so I have this, this, this craven fear I don't really know if God is for me. See, the first man and first woman fell into sin. God called out to them and they hid. And they made fig leaves to cover their nakedness. They hid because they just weren't convinced that God was good. And so God in tender mercy, one of the first things he did is he, he covered their nakedness with the skin of animals that he killed as a pre-statement of the coming sacrificial system for his covenant people that was a foreshadowing of the ultimate sacrifice, the Lamb of God, Jesus on the cross. How do you know that God is for you? It's because Jesus came and he died on the cross for our sins. He's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So I stand up and say, if God is for us, who can be against us, to quote the Apostle Paul? In the book of Revelation, there is a great final judgment, and it says this. It's a frightening passage. It says in chapter 6, verse 15, Then the kings of the earth, the kings, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called out to the mountains and rocks, fall on us 
and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? And the answer is the only way you meet the living God is in the person of Jesus. It's through the cross of Christ. The only way you know that God is really for you is to understand that Jesus is eternal God who died on the cross for your sin. And outside of that, there's no assurance. There's no hope. And so what Satan does, Satan comes along and he accuses us. He's the accuser of the brothers and the sisters. And so he says, how do you know that you really are accepted? How do you know? He can't read your mind. He doesn't know everything. He may just rehearse some of your sins and you say, you're right, you're right, you're right. Instead of doing that, say, you know, be gone, Satan. I am covered by the work of Christ. It's not some nebulous I hope for. It is verified. It is on the cross. It's the empty tomb. It's the resurrected Christ who is interceding. I am his. So a ploy of the devil is just to accuse us and to give us a craven fear of death. Do not misunderstand me. Death is hard. I've seen many people die. Death is hard. But for the believer, death is not the final word. There's hope. There's hope. I was reading the other day an interview with one of my favorite actors, Liam Neeson. Liam Neeson is a great, I, I, well, great, I like him. He's, I, like his, I like his movies. He's a man. He's, you know, he's just... So he was raised in Northern Ireland, and he, was say, he said in this interview that uh, he had a Catholic upbringing. He learned Latin to a degree. He was an altar boy, but he's not certain now. He says not certain of whether there really is an afterlife. But he says his religious upbringing is not far from me, and I have faith in the power of the theater, which is quite similar to the church. It's a body of people seeing something enacted. And I thought, What? Really? I mean, he's a great actor, but he's not a very good theologian. And I go, Liam, come on, man. I have faith in the theater. So there's just this, this ubiquitous nothingness. And then I thought of this poem that we had to study in college. I think it was college. It was Crossing the Bar by the Poet Laureate of Victorian England, Tennyson. And I'll just read two stanzas. But he's talking about, talking about his, his death and where he's going. Crossing the Bar. He says, Sunset and evening star in one clear call for me. And may there be no moaning of the bar when I put out to sea. Death. For though from out of our born of time and place the flood may bear me far, I hope to see my pilot face to face when I have crossed the bar. The pilot, there's no definition, the pilot. In fact, Tennyson wrote a letter, just to, this is written three years before he died. A couple years before he died, he wrote to a friend and said, At best, I am a sort of pantheist. Pantheists believe that God is everywhere and God is everything and he cannot be defined. So he calls him the pilot. I hope to see him. I think, you know, thanks be to God that we have a hope. And our hope is named Jesus. And God is eternal Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the cross is a real event, and the resurrection is a real event. And then I was, I was reading about the Covenanters this week. The Covenanters were in Scotland in the 17th century, and they loved the gospel. And the established church said, you can't meet, you can't preach, you can't worship. And they said, we will do all those things. They said, we don't believe in the divine right of kings. There's only one king. His name is Jesus. And so they were murdered. They were put to death. Uh, 
It's sad. Anyway, there's a, I read about a man named John Brown. I'm sure we're related because Brown's such a unique last name. But John Brown was a, was a believer. John Brown loved the gospel, loved scripture, was immersed in it. Uh, a farmer, wanted to be a preacher, but he had a terrible stammering problem. And so he would gather young men around him and mentor them and disciple them and teach them, and they would finish his sentences for him. And John Brown had a, God had mentored him, his, his pastor, a man by the name of Alexander Pedden. And John Brown married a woman named Isabel Weir. And on the day of their wedding in 1682, the pastor said to Isabel, Isabel, you have got yourself a good man in John Brown, but you may not enjoy him very long. Prize his company and keep linen by you to be his winding sheet, for you will need it when you are not looking for it, and it may be a bloody end. And what he's saying is people being killed for the faith, and John is a godly man. Sure enough, three years later, John Brown is in the field, a small farm working, and some government officials came in, and they were looking for the pastor to arrest him, and they said, he said, I don't know where he is. And they seized him and took him to his house and turned the house upside down and found some seditious literature that talked about being a covenanter and being a follower of King Jesus and not the King of England and loving the gospel of grace. And so the captain of the guard said, you're going to forfeit your life. And John Brown said, may I first pray? And he fell to his knees and he started praying in front of his wife and his small, small daughter that she was nursing. And he poured his heart out to God and he didn't stammer. And the captain of the guard said to his men, shoot him. He's not praying, he's preaching. And they said, we're not going to shoot him. We're not going to shoot him. The captain of the guard pulled out his pistol and shot and killed him in his house. And his wife laid the baby down with tears, put a, a winding sheet over his body. And the captain of the guard says to her, she says, what do you think of your husband now? And she said through tears, I thought much good of him before, but now I think even better of him. And I read that and I you can't make this stuff up. This is throughout church history. People went to their death with trust. It was hard. It's difficult. But there's a hope that extends beyond death, and, and, and that is our hope. Don't let the devil take that away from you. But by making you some type of person that defines God in some ubiquitous pantheistic way. Define him as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Glory in the cross. Don't say, well, God, God has forgiven me. He's forgiven me by the blood of Jesus. Be that type of person. Thirdly, another arrow in Satan's quiver is, is we've been praying about elders and deacons in our church. And so you review the qualifications for elders and deacons. It's very interesting. In 1 Timothy 3, 6 and 7, it talks about an elder who's a leader in the church. It says this, that an elder must, must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and into the snare of the devil. So you say, well, what is, the, what is the condemnation of the devil? It's when you're arrogant and puffed up and you're not teachable. So a leader in the church must be a, a, a man who is 
teachable and, and humble. Augustine died in 430, great teacher, one of the greatest teachers of the church, was a professor of rhetoric, had a PhD in rhetoric. And he said, if someone were to ask me the three laws of being a great man of rhetoric, it would be this, enunciation, enunciation, enunciation. If someone were to ask me, what are the three laws of being a bold follower of Jesus? I would say humility, humility, humility. And I step back from this passage and I say to myself, self, are you teachable? Are you broken? Are, are you listening? Do, do you glory in the goodness of Christ? And I, Do you have a good reputation with people on the outside so that you won't fall into the snare of the devil who wants you to say one thing and live the other way? Are you consistent? Do not be aware of the scheme of the devil. He wants you to be proud and obnoxious and arrogant. Thomas Watson was a wonderful Puritan. And he wrote a book on really how to, how to study the Bible. And this is what he says. He says, you, you take every word as spoken to yourselves when you read the Bible. When, when the word thunders against sin, think this way, God means my sins. When it presses any duty, say this, God intends me to do this. Many put off Scripture from themselves as if it only concerned those who lived in the time when it was written but if you intend to profit by the word of God, bring it home to yourselves. A medicine will do no good unless it is applied. And so when you open the Bible, you ought to be praying, God, bring it home. I'll confess to you, there are times I'll read something and I'll think, boy, I wish this guy or this gal would read this passage. I would be primarily saying, I need to read this passage. No? There's another ploy of the devil, and I have, it's clearly in the Bible, and I haven't mentioned it in these weeks, and I want to mention, I just think I need to talk, say it out loud, and uh, it's, yeah, it, I really hesitate to say this, but I'm going to say it. I wish I had a paper bag to put over my head, but I'm going to go ahead and say it, okay? Um, one, one of the ploys of the devil is to get into our marriages. If, if God can get into your marriage, excuse me, if the devil gets in your marriage, it's horrible. Um, there's a country music song. I just thought of this. I'm not a country music guy. But a country music song that says, at the end of the day, I get to come home to you. He says, you know, the, the world's a storm, but I get to come home to you. And when, when, when a man or a woman can look at their spouse and say, you know, life is up full of ups and downs, but I get to come home to my spouse. There's an oasis of joy in my life, and it's because Jesus is the Lord of my marriage. So I'm going to just mention 1 Corinthians 7. I should do it behind a screen, but I'm going to mention it. And you'll see why in one second. So here it goes. You guys keep those emails coming after this statement, okay? Paul says, uh, he says, I, I wish all men were as I am. I.e. had the gift of singleness. People, there are some people here who have the gift of singleness. He said, but 
because all people do not have that gift. He says, verse 2, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, i.e. sexual intimacy, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but his wife does. Just stop there. Some people, sometimes I'll see somebody, a guy, and they'll say, you know, what do you think of my, my whatever, haircut or whatever? I'll say, it makes no difference what I think. If you're married, there is a 100% tribunal you answer to. Tribunal is probably a bad word, but you have to answer to it. (laughs) It's your spouse. If your spouse likes it, go for it. You know, if your spouse likes whatever, just, you know. Anyway, that's that's aside. Verse 5, do not deprive one another except of sex, except perhaps by an agreement, so even it's an agreement, for a limited time, then you, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. You see, when you have marital discord and you withhold intimacy from one another because you're angry or upset or you're pointing fingers, guess who's in that? The devil. The devil. And I All of us have been married more than four months. Understand this. You know, you start start having a discussion, and somebody fires the first shot, and then the spouse fires another shot, and you fire back, and they fire back, and pretty soon you have no idea what you're arguing about, but boy, you're mad, and you're upset, and you withhold romance, and you withhold compliments, and you withhold respect, and you withhold physical intimacy, and the devil's in it. Don't let the devil in your marriage. Be quick to seek forgiveness. Men, be pace setters. Let romance and joy and laughter ring in your home. I tell you, when I, after the service, when I walk up and down this hall, and I see these old, old people that are 65 or so, <laughs> and they're walking down the hallway holding hands, and they've been married 40 years, I, I just want to say, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Lord. That's the way it's supposed to be. When Jesus is the head of your home, there should be tenderness and love and affection. Yea, even intimacy. Conjugal rights. That's the PG word. Don't let the devil in your marriage. Be caring. Be tender. I think it did okay. That was, that was not too bad, was it? Okay. So, very quickly, our time is running out here, and probably after what I just said, you won't hear anything else that's said from here on out. Um, so in Luke chapter 11, do this very quickly. Luke 11, Jesus gives a statement that, that many people who write extensively on this issue say this is the sine qua non. This is the ultimate statement on, on, on battling darkness. Jesus says... That, that nobody can, can plunder a strong man's house unless he's first been bound. And after the strong man has been bound, you plunder his house. And, and, and the question is, what does that mean? Here's what it means. That by the active obedience of Christ in the garden, uh, or before that in the temptation in the wilderness, every time that he struck out and, and gave the body blow to the forces of darkness, 
Satan was being partially bound and on the cross. And by the resurrection, a stake was driven through the heart of the devil. So the heart is, the, the devil is mortally wounded, but he's still limping. Therefore, the, the way you continuously bind Satan in your life is that you glory in Christ. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord. Know who you are in the Lord and be strong in the strength of his might. And we're going through this armor, the, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the imputed righteousness of Christ, the glory of the cross, feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, taking up the shield of faith, and now the helmet of salvation. First Thessalonians says the helmet of the hope of salvation. And so we, we fight the devil. The, the, the helmet governs the way we think the way we perceive life. And so in closing very quickly, when you think about the helmet of hope of salvation, the helmet of salvation protects me, there are two things you ask. The, the, the first that I think of is, is, is this, is God really good? And the answer is God is good. As we behold the glory of the cross, God is for us. There's a statement in the sermon guide, and I, it's from a woman named Johnny Erickson Tata, and I, I read it, and it just is absolutely mind-boggling. Johnny, Johnny was 16, she went, I think she's 16, she went swimming, she dove, she broke her spinal column, she's been a quadriplegic, I think she's 64 years old now, and a quad, has had a long and fruitful life for Christ, and this is what she says, and it, it, it's just, it's, she says, no, Satan doesn't sneak out and cause pneumonia and cancer while God happens to be looking the other way, listening to the prayers of his people. He can only do what our all-powerful and all-knowing God allows him to do. And she says this. I sometimes shudder to think where I would be today if I had not broken my neck. It's amazing. I couldn't see at first why God would allow this to happen, but I sure do now. He has gotten so much more glory through my paralysis than through my health. Exclamation point. And believe me, you'll never know how rich that makes me feel. If God chooses to heal you in answer to that prayer, that's great. Thank him for it. But if he chooses not to, thank him anyway. You can be sure he has his reasons. That, that's an amazing statement. See, when you walk in the Lord's way and you're seeking to be obedient to him, you can rest in his fatherly goodness. If you are disobedient and you put yourself in the circumference of the devil, um, God may use that to bring you back. But you, you just, you, you trust the goodness of God. There are people here today who are going through very hard times. And you're saying, I, 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 I'm seeking the Lord. I'm trying to do right. I, I'm glorying in Jesus. It is hard. Trust God and go for Lean into the wind. I think the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, he, he says, I had a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what that was. He doesn't tell us exactly what it was. He said, but I pled with God. Especially three times. I don't know if that's a time of fasting or what. But three times he said, I pled with God. Take 
it away. He says, but God said this to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. So you, you trust the goodness of God. You say, God, I don't understand this. I don't understand why we're going through this chapter with our child, our adult child, our, my health, my, my lack of being married. I want to be married so badly. I don't understand this. I don't understand. But, but I, I trust you, Abba, Father. I trust you right now with this. And I trust that in... In, in, in the midst of my weakness and pain and discouragement, that you will make me the man or the woman you've called me to be because you're God. See that? Don't let the devil beat you down. Trust God. You, you say, God is good. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and He is the second, the second thing, very quickly, is I, I just I, I step back and I say, is change really possible? And brothers and sisters, God is a power at work in us by His Spirit. He changes us. He not only is good, but He changes us. I, I, I'll sometimes talk to people and they'll say something like this, maybe not this blatant, but you know, my granddad was angry, my father was angry, I guess I'll be angry till I go to heaven. That is a lie from the pit of hell. It smells like smoke and it stinks. Jesus died on the cross to make us new people. He poured out the Holy Spirit at Pentecost to make us new people. Or I'll, I'll say, well, you know, we live in this pervasive, horrific world of flesh-saturated pornography, man, I guess, it's, I'll just, I guess I'll just be involved in that from time to time. Don't buy the lie. God died to make us men of purity. I want to be a man of purity. Or, you know, just you can go on and on and on. I'm, I'm, I'm just negative. You know, I just, I'm just Eeyore in the flesh. That's just my family's a negative family. You know, don't buy the lie. The helmet of salvation governs the way we think and the way we respond. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the day, the glorious day you've given us. And I just pray, 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 pray that you'd work in us and change us. And Lord, do, do not let us be unaware of the multifaceted attack of the forces of darkness. It's as varied as lying about what we're doing as believers, like Ananias. It's as varied as just being an arrogant, hard-hearted person. It's as varied as withholding affection and forgiveness and embrace from our spouse. All of them. And I thank you that you're good. I thank you that at the end of the day, we can lay our head on the pillow and we can say, Abba, Father, reigns. I thank you that we can wake up in the morning saying, Abba, Father, reigns. That the living Christ intercedes and that the blessed Spirit teaches and guides. Wow, thank you for that. Just thank you. I pray we would be overcome with awe 
as we contemplate the greatness of God. I pray that as we drive home today, that as we see the beauty of this day, that we would realize it's more than just a gigantic mistake that happened when two passing gases bumped into each other. That this is a created world that was spoke into being, sung into being by our Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.